0: This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. let me tell you a story. It's a story about God and it's a story about you and me. It's a story about Jesus, Mary and Joseph who were the bravest people on earth. So a long time ago, before you or anybody you know was born, the world had fallen on dark times. Legions of Roman soldiers had captured much of the world. They captured it through violence and they kept it through violence. I already told you about the young girl, Mary, who married the construction contractor, Joseph, and they had a life-changing encounter with an angel who filled them with fear at first and then filled them with courage. They probably never learned how to read or write, but Mary and Joseph knew their scriptures by heart by chanting them their whole lives. And they believed that God's promises would come true. They believed that he would scatter the proud and exalt the lowly. So they were brave. In a time when bandits ruled the road, they traveled to the hill country of Judea to serve Mary's cousin, and then they traveled through Samaria along the Jordan River to go to Joseph's ancestral home, Bethlehem. They lived in a time when, if you obeyed the Romans, good things came your way, goods from all over the world. If you disobeyed the Romans, bad things happened in your life. And as a warning, as you approached Jerusalem, you sometimes saw men writhing in their death throes on boards, like giant billboards of fear, the crucifixes. Mary and Joseph weren't afraid of the mighty Caesar Augustus, who called himself the Son of God, and who loved to take over new territory and announce the good news that the Son of God was now among them and had taken over their land. They knew Caesar was not the son of God. They knew there was another son of God to be expected. So they threw themselves into the teeth of the Roman Empire, not afraid at all of Caesar Augustus. And Mary and Joseph had the most difficult last week before Christmas of any couple in history, right? They didn't have to wait in lines at traffic lights or rush to stores or stay up late wrapping presents. Instead, they plodded along with a caravan during the day, slept unprotected under the stars at night, and they didn't have to get their house ready for company. Instead, they had to find a house, find a place to give birth to the Son of God, even when there was no room for them in the inn. So Mary gave birth in a stable, which is essentially a cave in Bethlehem of that time. And there, warmed by the breath of the donkey and the ox, her baby was born. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, which was a tight kind of bandage that kept the child's arms close to them so they felt like they were still in the womb. And then ruffians, shepherds, who are basically these like guys who live outside and stay up all night with the sheep showed up to gawk at Mary and the baby and claimed that a host of heavenly beings, like an army from heaven had appeared in the sky to tell them about this birth. But they weren't afraid of any of that because trusting the promise, God literally made them the bravest people on earth. So that's one way to tell the story. And the Christmas story is one of the greatest stories of all time. It's exciting, it's charming, dramatic, captivating. It's such a great story that it compels people to love and believe in Jesus. We love the story and we think about it a little bit like Sebastian Flight did. He was a British aristocratic Catholic character in Evelyn Waugh's novel Brideshead Revisited. And so the protagonist of the story, Charles Ryder, doesn't believe in Christianity and kind of tries to commiserate with Sebastian when he realizes he's in this hardcore Catholic family. He said, I suppose they try to make you believe an awful lot of nonsense. Is it nonsense? Asked Sebastian. I wish it were. It sometimes sounds terribly reasonable to me. But my dear Sebastian, you can't seriously believe it all, can't I? I mean Christmas and the star and the three kings and the ox and the ass. Oh yes, I believe that. It's a lovely idea. Charles says, but you can't believe things just because they're a lovely idea. But I do, he said. That's how I believe. And that's how a lot of us believe it. And that really upsets people who want to reject Christianity. Every year you see attempts to paint this story as a myth from every conceivable view to try to desperately get people to not believe in this charming story just because it's charming. But Luke, in his account of Christmas, which is the most famous one, it's the one that uh, Linus reads in the Peanuts Christmas special, he carefully starts out telling the story to make it very clear that he means for it to be history, not myth. He says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. They all went to be registered, each to his own town. I watched a TED Talk recently called Fact-Checking the Bible by David Ellis Dickerson. It's this guy who was hired to do a TV quiz show on the Bible, and his talk is a way for him to talk about how totally flawed the Bible is and to laugh at its stories. Anyway, he is a typical example of people trying to demythologize the story. He said almost everything in that account about Caesar Augustus and Quirinius was wrong. So there's no such census mentioned anywhere in antiquity. Quirinius was not governor of Syria at the time that Jesus would have been born. And he said it's absurd to suggest that in order to count people and get taxes from them, you would send them back to the birthplace of their ancestors or their own birthplace. He said, I don't even know where you would send me. Would it be to Toronto or to Detroit? He lived in both places as a child. I watched this and then I did a minute and a half of research and realized that everything he said was wrong. So first of all, about the dating of the birth of Jesus. We think of the year zero as the year that Jesus was born. And in fact, in the year 2000, we celebrated the 2000th anniversary of Jesus's birth. But really the monk who came up with that calendar system was off a little bit. And so scholars generally think that Jesus was born sometime between the year 6 BC and 4 BC somewhere in there. Well, censuses at the time were painstaking, years-long things, and we do have evidence that there was a census in the area in 6 AD. So that's not far off, maybe 10 years from uh, the actual birth date of Jesus. And But these, sta- these censuses happened in stages. So when you said there was a census in such and such a year, you're picking maybe the completion of the census, maybe the start of the third phase of the census there's not a date on which the census begins. And the text of the Bible literally says the first registration. So maybe this was the first step in a process of this census. And Crinius was not yet governor of Syria. That's true. But he would soon be governor of Syria. And you could certainly imagine that he was the guy in charge of this census for the governor's office. So, you know, six in one, half dozen in the other, the title applies to what he was doing. And then Dickerson's whole notion that it's silly to send somebody back to their ancestral land for a census is entirely anachronistic, right? Joseph would probably have had property still in Bethlehem. He certainly had family connections in Bethlehem, so he needed to be counted as a Bethlehem guy in one sense or another. Anyway, I found these answers by looking at Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives. This is a book by Benedict XVI, and uh, he does a lot of work in that book answering these sorts of things. And he's dealing with scholars who put much more effort into it than Dickerson had. And I love one Protestant theologian he quotes from the 21st century, Klaus Berger. Even when there is only a single attestation of an event in the Bible, one must suppose until the contrary is proven that the evangelists did not intend to deceive their readers, but rather to inform them concerning historical events. To contest the historicity of this account, on mere suspicion, exceeds every imaginable competence of historians. End quote from Klaus Berger. So yes, I believe that the Christmas story is true, and not just because it's a lovely idea, uh, but because it checks out. But Sebastian Flight was onto something, and I want to describe that in a little bit. But first, I want to tell the Christmas story another way. The story not from the book of scripture, but from the book of nature. One way I'm growing to love of telling this story more and more is this. At the Big Bang with incredible force, all matter in the universe began exploding from its very densest form to what we see today, billions of years later. And billions of years later, in one solar system circling one star at one corner of this ginormous galaxy, a sizable single moon allowed one planet to stay temperate enough to sustain life, Earth. So life did develop here over billions of years, becoming ever more complex until pre-humans and then human beings were developed in Northern Africa. Father Robert Spitzer has this uh, great talk with the Napa Institute, where he talks about remarkable evidence for the immaterial soul. And he describes how a language event 70,000 years ago caused just this enormous difference in anthropological findings. He says Noam Chomsky and others are trying to figure out how this possibly could have happened genetically. Uh, Spitzer says it didn't happen genetically. It happened genetically plus with the origin of the human soul. So what's a human soul? Well, it means that we are someone and not something. We are each capable of self-knowledge, self-possession, and also freely giving ourselves to others and to God. We're embodied and embedded. We're embodied because our soul and body is one thing uh, with remarkable abilities of intellect and reason that come literally from our brain, we're embedded because we only make sense in communities. So the remarkable things that our organs do are in fact directed toward communion with others. We can use abstract thinking and use nouns and prepositions and cases and imperatives and grammar. We can use symbolic reasoning, to put shapes to use, making complex tools or to paint pictures or to solve problems. Wonder and awe fuel our imagination and drive us to question current circumstances and discover new possibilities to enrich our lives. We are embodied and embedded. We are given these amazing capabilities in our minds that we can then use to connect with others. And don't think about the soul as a separate, invisible person inside yourself. The soul is an animating principle, the spiritual principle in man, the entire human person in the catechism. Uh, One of our philosophers here at Benedictine College, James Madden, has compared the soul to the user interface of a computer. It's not something separate from the computer. It's what expresses the computer's meaning and purpose and opens it out to others. Anyway, so you see how this works in the history of humanity from northern Africa and then in migratory journeys across the globe as human beings become explorers, craftspersons, artists who talked to God and trusted their dead into God's care. So you see in the history of humanity this flourishing of the human spirit. You also see that the history of humanity is marked by terrible sin Virtues and violence go hand in hand in the Western world. The pagan virtues of domination, violence and mastery were the norm until they were challenged about 2000 years ago. And this again is something that's empirically observable by looking at anthropology, looking at history. Author Tom Holland wrote several books where he did deep dives into ancient civilizations. He wanted to understand what it was like to live in ancient Sparta and ancient Rome. And that's when he noticed something unique had happened 2000 years ago. Holland, who is not a Christian believer, said, quote, the more years I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien I increasingly found it. These people practiced a peculiarly murderous form of eugenics. And trained their young to kill uppity people of lower classes. They were marked by the complete lack of any sense that the poor and the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. He said that the appearance of Christ on earth had such a great power that years later, quote, it's still manifested in a great surge of conversions that have swept over Africa and Asia in the past century, in the conviction of millions upon millions in the world, and in Europe and North America, in the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christian, quote. So Christianity launched a revolution in morality, but also in literature, in art, in music, and in science, Christianity gave birth to the scientific method. It gave birth to the technologies that we enjoy, the medical technologies that keep us alive. So you can tell a story about Christmas that starts with astronomy, progresses through biology and chemistry, and then is demonstrable through anthropology, history, and sociology. Benedict XVI said, This is also a story which is written by God, the God who is the ground of being, the creator of all. He said, quote, the imagery of nature as a book has its roots in Christianity and has been held dear by many scientists. Galileo saw nature as a book whose author is God in the same way that scripture has God as its author. In the book whose history, whose evolution, whose writing and meaning we read according to the different approaches of science, while all the time presupposing the foundational presence of the author who wished to reveal himself therein. the XVI said this is also a story written by God. He said, alongside the book of scripture, there's the book of nature. Uh, He says even Galileo recognized this as uh, a book whose author is God. Uh, It's a book whose history, whose evolution, whose writing and meaning we read according to different approaches of the sciences. So we use the past tense when we say God created the world, but that opens us up to a mistake because God didn't create the world at some point in history, and then watched it go and kind of intervene at certain discrete points to keep it going along the right path. No, rather, it's better to say God creates the world. He's outside time and space. And so there's no past creation event for him. He's the ground of being who is right now creating the world's beginning, completing the world's end, and empowering the world's now. As a result, Pope Benedict says that we can look through science at the world right now and see God in, quote, both the macro universe, our earth, the planets, the stars, the galaxies, and the micro universe, cells, atoms, elementary particles. He said the name of the blessed Trinity is in a certain sense imprinted upon all things because all that exists down to the last particle is in relation. In this way, we catch a glimpse of God as relationship and ultimately creator love. So there's two ways you can tell the Christmas story. One is this couple in the ancient world making their way to Bethlehem. The other is this ginormous cosmic story of creation. I spoke before about the ego drama versus the theodrama that Bishop Barron likes to talk about. Well, he gets that idea from Hans Urs von Balthasar. Balthasar wrote that when God created the universe, he decided to write a play. He did not do it in order to pass the time like pagans thought, says Balthazar. No, no, no. Indeed, the utterly serious point here is that loving and being loved is God's passion. End quote. So this is why God wrote the story of the universe as a drama and why he writes each of our lives as a drama, because loving and being loved is God's passion. Balthazar takes it one step further. He says that, the drama that is our life on earth and Jesus's life on earth reveals what God's inner life is like to us. He says, quote, all external scenes of Jesus's life and sufferings are to be understood as a direct revelation of the interior life and intentions of God, end quote. So when we watch this story unfold. We're seeing in slow motion what it means to be God and what it means to be human. So I believe so strongly that God is a storytelling God, that I think our dramatic sensitivity comes from God, that part of our imaging of God happens when we build bridges and buildings, but also happens when we tell stories. Consider Consider the dramatic aspects of salvation history. There's an inciting incident, the snake in the garden. There's the rising action and complications uh, with great special effects like the flood and like the burning bush. There are figures like Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon who are fascinating people who rise and fall through tragic flaws and romance and betrayal and plot twists. And then there's astonishing climaxes and ultimate resolutions. This is where we get our sensibility for drama. And Christmas clearly seems to be designed by somebody who is a dramatist, by God the dramatist. So I I just go through a few principles that may be goofy or not. You can be the judge. But first, uh, storytellers like to create the right expectations for their story. So if you imagine like an Irish storyteller in a pub, he might say, I've got a great one for you. Listen here. Or he might try to lower your expectations and lean forward a little bit and say, you may not see much in this story. You may not even think it's true. But let me tell you, And go on from there anyway hollywood does the same thing they uh have a whole system of trailers and teaser trailers that come out to tell you what to expect from a movie well god used all salvation history to build up to well three events in particular christmas easter and pentecost we're talking about christmas and uh you get a big spoiler alert in matthew 121 when the angel tells joseph Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That save them from their sins is a spoiler alert, So, but we'll get to that later on in the extraordinary story. Uh, But the Old Testament is filled with this longing that set this expectation for God to tell his story. A succession of prophets kept painting the pictures of the one who was to come. He would answer to the promises of Noah, Abraham, and David, which we've talked about. He would be born of a virgin, which we haven't talked about. He would be born in Bethlehem. Caravans would come from the east as Gentiles were won over by him. He would be a healer. He would bring justice. He would bring peace. He would suffer and die as a sacrifice for our sins, the sins of his people, Uh, And finally, Daniel described this divine figure who he called the Son of Man, significantly, who had come to power after successive empires fell. So I described a lot of, actually, preparation that was done outside of the Jewish world for Christ as well in my Catholic Living podcast on Christlessness. So I won't repeat it here. But God set expectations throughout the whole world that this person was coming and he's going to be a big deal. So another dramatic principle is always make your entrances count. This is one of the ones that my mother taught me. She literally told me, always make your entrances count. And then I noticed that she practiced it. Whenever she would come home from work, she would come in in a different way. She'd um, open the door and call out to us, so we'd have to come. Or she'd knock on the door, or she would open the door in a noisy way and just stand there until we got up to see what had happened with the door. Um, so she always made her interest in this count. You see this in movies and uh, TV shows. You see Maria running down the side of the Alpine Mountain in The Sound of Music. You see Gandalf the wizard with fireworks on his cart as he drives into Hobbiton in The Lord of the Rings. You see Simba lifted aloft in The Lion King. That's a so that's a pretty big entrance. And then you always see Kramer in the old Seinfeld show. He always skids into Jerry's kitchen and comes in in some goofy way that kind of says, here I am. God is the king of Germanic entrances. Uh, you see it in the Christmas story. You know, angels prepare the way uh, at his conception and birth. He doesn't just arrive on the scene. He has a chorus of angels singing to shepherds. He has a giant star, like a spotlight on him. So God knows how to make his entrances count. Another dramatic principle is that you should always play to the back row. Now, this is, you know, coupled with you, you've got to feed the um the high-class customers, but you have to play to the back row. You see this in Shakespeare. He has philosophically deep musings uh, on the one hand. On the other, he's got sword fights and angry tantrums and weeping and screaming. Uh, you see it in Marvel movies too. You see uh, lots of nuance for the thinkers who want to get into the details of what an infinity stone is. Um, I do not want to get into the details of that, so I have no idea. But you also see lots of emotion and action for people who just want to see a fun story unfold. Well, God's stories are the same way. If you read the Gospels, you'll find lots of nuance and subtlety, enough to keep theologians busy for two millennia. But you will also find stories that are told with these bold, stark characters, clear, telling actions. The church has always been able to speak to the illiterate as well as the literate. Simply by depicting these stories without words in paintings, you speak profound truths to people who who can't read or can't understand uh, philosophy. So Christmas plays to the back row very effectively, so effectively that it's still captures our culture's imagination, even decades, centuries, after people have intellectually uh, been steeped in Christianity. God is a dramatist, and he delivers very powerful lessons about who he is and who we are through his drama. And I, I consider it like a Christmas miracle that this story that's so well known to us has the power to shock and surprise us every single year as if we'd never heard the story before they also have a power to say profound things to the 21st century just as much as they had the power to say profound things to the fifth century god became like us to show us that we can be like him and that we are like him because he appeared among us as a baby like us and he grew up among us as a child like us Alastair McIntyre, in his seminal book, After Virtue, says man is a storytelling animal. Well, we get that from God. He's right, and it says a lot about our personal identity. He says that the human being, quotes in his actions as well as in his fictions, is essentially a storytelling animal, a teller of stories that aspire to truth. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part End quote. This is the sense in which I like that Sebastian Flight thought the very idea of Bethlehem was enough to recommend it to him. McIntyre writes, quote, It is through hearing stories about wicked stepmothers, lost children, good but misguided kings, etc., that children learn or mislearn both what a child is and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama into which they were born, and the ways of the world. He said, deprive children of stories and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutters in their actions and in their words. So how are we supposed to know who we are? Because we are part of a narrative that started at our birth, will end at our death. So who are we? We are this person who lives here with this beginning headed toward this end. So to use one of McIntyre's examples, who is Edmund Dante's? He was once the prisoner of the Chateau d'If." And then he was the Count of Monte Cristo. So you can't sum him up as the slave he was in the prison or the aristocrat he was as the Count. He is this person who is on this journey, on this quest. Who is Jason Bourne? Well, he doesn't know who he is, and he only discovers who he is by loving another person, that embodied and embeddedness that human beings have. And by discovering what his future can be, and then later learning what his past was and the events that led to where he was. In other words, by discovering his narrative, he discovered who he was. This is a big concept in our time. You hear it in the musical Hamilton, where characters talk about who will tell their story and how will they know who they are and how will the world remember them. This is how we discover who we are and how the Christmas story shows us who we are. So The reason our cities light up like a firefly convention every December is because we have this aching need for somebody to tell us who we are. And despite what the world tries to take this story away from us, we love what it tells us about who we are. Uh, No matter what our culture does to dampen the faith, Christianity is the fire that we still light every year and tell stories around. Think of all that it reveals. So we need to know that God exists and that he loves us. Uh, We may say there's no God, but somehow we all know we're more than just the product of chance plus evolution plus time. There's more to us than that. Uh, We're not just waiting to die in some remote corner of the universe like flies in a cosmic alleyway. We know our great thoughts, our noble aspirations, our fond memories and deep longings aren't just blind products of material forces with no meaning other than the same meaning that a turtle might have when it's looking for a place to lay its eggs. And Christmas tells us that God is not indifferent to us. God is not a cosmic, untouchable being. He's aware of us, he loves us, he's literally at our side and we need to know that, Christmas tells us that. We also need to know that our innocence is not gone forever. So it happened to each one of us. We hate to see it happen to our children, but we know it will. There's a time when we were shocked that there was evil in the world, evils on the scale that evil exists in the world there's a time when we thought parents are definitely automatically hardworking and caring and loving no matter what and that we could expect only understanding and goodness from our fellow man there was a time when we thought we ourselves would never be capable of doing anything seriously wrong well we soon found ourselves immersed in a world rife with horror stories in the news such that they don't even shock us anymore Pornography on the internet that's objectively shocking, that doesn't shock us anymore. And violent entertainment on our Xboxes and on our box offices. So crassness seems to be the story of mankind, but Christmas tells us that it isn't, and that we need to hear that. And we want to believe that it's true. And Christmas convinces us that it is true. Uh, Because by coming the way he did, God showed us that innocence is fundamental, God was a baby whose mother and father stood by his side all night. Then he grew old and died as pure as he started. This is who we want to be. This is who we see ourselves in. We also have a need to know that love is more fundamental than power. We're tired of being pushed around, we're tired of being used by retailers, employers, politicians, car companies, (laughs) banks, home mortgage institutions. We're tired of having to push other people around too to get what we want, having to assert ourselves and make our way in the world and play this awful game where we have to uh, drag somebody else down a little bit to get ourselves up to the next step. And Christmas teaches that God doesn't want to dominate us. He's not part of that domination game. He wants to woo us. When he finally appears, he appears as a helpless infant. He doesn't compel anyone to his side. He attracts them with love. We respond with love when we see that, with this outpouring of gifts that we give to everybody. We want to give as many gifts as we break the bank and we pay for it for months because we want to give so much at Christmas. We also have this need for Christmas because we need to be one with all the people of the world. Okay, you see this over and over again, this dream in pop culture. I want to teach the world a song and keep it company. Uh, You see John Lennon imagining a world where all the people will be as one. Right, We revere people who actually got this done on, in small ways, or at least in temporary ways. Martin Luther King Jr. got it done, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Nelson Mandela. We are enchanted by events like the Olympics that still give us this, this illusion of oneness in the world, uh, when argument and division finally cease. And we want more of that. Christmas tells us that this is possible. We see our world as a culture war where other people are either part of an effort to do the things right or part of an effort to destroy all that we hold dear. There are very few times when we set aside our differences and just love and respect each other as human beings. But Christmas is one of those times. Uh, God the dramatist built it that way, you know, with the shepherds and the wise men and all these strange characters from all over the earth convening on this one spot. We have this desperate need for that to happen again in our lives. And we have this desperate need to believe that it will. And I believe that it will. We're all sons and daughters of God, made by God who is love, made to love, made by a God who is obsessed with loving and being loved. That's what Christmas does. That's what Christmas tells us. But let me end by making one thing clear. As we will explore in the next couple episodes, Christmas and the Incarnation are much more than the Sebastian flight, lovely idea. The first Christmas happened in a time of terror, Jerusalem was occupied by Roman soldiers, a blind bureaucracy gave Joseph and Mary uh, this ill-timed journey late in pregnancy, Mary gave birth in a stable far from her home and then had to flee for her life and the life of her child. So the Christmas story has never been the story of humanity's escape into the magic and wonder of the divine, which we kind of tell it that way. That's not what happened. It's the story of God's decision to immerse himself in human violence, in our violence, fear and hatred from his infancy to his death on the cross to tell us his story and our story, the extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by ExCorde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.